0: Well this is a curious one, you know you've heard about due diligence, well I think we have some overdue diligence and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about just a work ethic, the good old Protestant work ethic as applied to the ministry and uh, I'll step on toes, I'll step on my own, but uh, anyway just bear with me as we get uh, about the topic or resolve to get cooking. Overdue diligence. In 2013 Kevin DeYoung came out with a book called Crazy Busy. And he quoted scripture, Psalm 127.2, In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. In 2014, Alistair Begg came out with a book called Crazy Lazy. And he was preaching through Proverbs there. And uh, in Proverbs 6, you read, Go to the ant, you sluggard, or a little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a, a vagabond. So there's scripture on both sides, so which is it? Are we too busy, or are we too lazy? Well certainly there are rocks on both sides. You can overdo it and you can underdo it and becoming what, uh, or overdo it, what Wayne Oates called a workaholic. Did you know in Japan there's a word for working yourself to death? People do this, they put in such hours and grind that they just collapse at their desks. It's called karoshi. So there are dangers. So where are we clergy? Where are we laymen? Where's the church on this spectrum of crazy lazy to crazy busy? Well, of course, it depends on your situation. You don't upbraid a person who's reading Ivanhoe on the poop deck of a cruise ship on his break, but if a guy's reading Walter Scott as he's about to drop bombs on Ploesti oil fields from a B-17, put the book down, you know? Uh, you know, If you're encircled at Bastogne, don't just get uh, wrapped up in novels, you better watch. Have a word of prayer with a brother like this. Well, on this model, I'd suggest that we are less on an Alaskan or a Caribbean cruise than island hopping from Guadalcanal to Iwo Jima to Okinawa. Our culture has sunk to lows unimaginable to those World War II vets when they were returning. Just consider the inroads made by the transgender movement. I mean, to to have guys running track with with girls, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. the growth of the nuns, and I don't mean N-U-N-S, but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, the Babylonian captivity of the media, academia, politics, big business, the entertainment industry. Look, I, I was just noticing uh, in the Epic Times, critical race theory update at 2, Williamson County. Williamson County is just south of here. You know, it's very red politically, and it's Franklin, Tennessee, and Brentwood. And, and uh, here we have a superintendent who's helping second graders to learn critical race theory, you know, and it's it just you can't make this stuff up, it's just getting crazier. And while Spurgeon could call the pulpit the Thermopylae of Christendom, have you ever seen that quote where he says, you know, the Spartans standing against the vastly outnumbering Persians. You know, I think it's more like the pulpit, in some cases, is sort of like the post for a karaoke DJ who's just channeling the songs of the culture or something like this. (laughs) And by the way, I have to say, I was just thinking of what James was saying. I was thinking when I was a kid in the South and cheering for the integrationists that uh, people were being fire-hosed in Selma and other places for believing in colorblindness. You know, their buses were being set on fire and they were being beaten. And now, if you stand for colorblindness, you get hosed again. It's the strangest. (laughs) The German shepherds are on you again. Well, please understand. I believe in rest and recreation. They're important. I've taught courses on work and leisure at Wheaton, and I have little uh, field videos on sauntering and browsing and and uh, just all kind of watching sports. I shot some footage at Wrigley Field with Kershaw on the mound uh, on the mound losing to the Cubs, um, vegging out. There's a place for all this. It's great. You have to unstring the bow, you know. As Melville said in Moby Dick. You know there was a time when they used to uh, make the harpooner, the harpoon thrower, row out to the whale. But when he got out there he was just so weak and shaky he couldn't make the thing stick in the whale or he'd miss. So they finally let him just ride to the whale. And so there's a time to preserve your powers and regenerate yourself. But a lot of people just don't seem to be stringing the bow at all or uh, getting into the whale boat. And so I think today we better focus a little bit more on hard work, getting after it. Now, it's not a one-size-fits-all proposition. A variety of factors come into play. We have different physical strains. Some of us are weaker than others, and, and by the way, I get exhausted by bad news and exhilarated by good news, and so you have these psychological uh, uh, things going. We all need our amens. I had a preacher once visiting, and he said, you can kill your pastor. If you amen when he preaches because he'll preach himself to death and that's uh that's about true but bear with me thank you brother I want to say by the way we spoke uh, I took the Wheaton BSU to the south side of Chicago one day we were trying to raise money for something I forgot what it was and so we we're down at a, at a church on the far south side and and uh, we had, a, at Bean we had these little Minnesotans there, and, and there's a little guy named Chuck, and he would walk with his arms by his leg, just a real button down guy. And so we, we had Chuck up testifying, he had this little testament. And they started to the amen in this church, they were working with him. We're sitting on the front row, and, and Chuck's just started gesturing around with this Bible. We thought, Chuck, what happened? So he got, he got free. So thank you for the amens. I tell you what. Well, let me just quickly use about a a dozen or so, very quickly, some encounters I've had that have informed my thinking on work. When I was junior prophet Wheaton my first year, I had uh, six new preparations, and that's pretty tough. You're in chapel at 10 o'clock, and you're thinking, what am I going to do at 1130 in that class that's coming up? I'm one step ahead of the students. And in that setting, uh, I agreed to be the faculty advisor for the B- BSU back then. Sometimes they call it BSM. And on the Chicago CMBA Student Ministry Board, and so I would go in after hours to Oak Park, uh, where it was then. Where is it now? The Blue, Blue Island, I think, down there somewhere. I forget where the association is now. And uh, we'd work, and I thought in some cases, on sort of trivial matters, till real late at night, and I'd come dragging in after 10 o'clock, and it was like 20 miles in toward the lakefront. And so I collapsed, and then had to get up at, I don't know, six or something for an eight o'clock class, and I dragged into my eight o'clock class. And I remember thinking, oh, I forgot something. And I called the association, and I said, look, just to follow up on the meeting last night, I, I, could I talk to Frank in this case? And he said, no, Frank, Frank had a meeting last night. Frank was working last night. Thought well, I was working last night and for free, you know, uh, and I'm on my post at eight o'clock here at Wheaton. Now look, I don't know. They had they probably had a good com- compensatory time thing, and it probably all made sense. But I got to thinking, and I saw I saw confirmation of this thinking or encouragement through the years, and it was like I'm not sure the guys in ministry know what it is to be out in the world working. And so I did this thing, I didn't do it for long, but I did it enough, I think. Uh, when I was a pastor in Arkansas, uh, I was saying, all right, look, the guys in our church who work out at Lion Oil, spelled the same forward and backwards, by the way, Lion Oil, uh, or Murphy Oil, or something like this, these guys, let's say they work 40-hour weeks. And then they give 10 hours to the church, you know, they prepare their Sunday school lessons and teach Sunday school lessons, and they come to church, and they come to prayer meeting, and they're in this committee or that committee. So let's just say they give 10 hours to the church. Well, for you to think, well, I work Sunday, I can take Monday off because I work Sunday. Well, they work Sunday, you know, and, and then also on Saturday. So I said, let's do this. If you work every night, then you can take off every morning. But I just want to see a log of 50 hours given to the church this week. Your main job is your church, let's say 40 hours. And then, like layman, you give 10 hours to the church. And it was just kind of, go, you know, that sort of thing. But I, and whether or not that's legalistic and micromanaging and all that, there's a point here. Look, I talked in the work and leisure course, I interviewed a guy whose marriage had blown up down in Texas, and he was the choir director, and he, uh, he went to work at Chick-fil-A, stepped off the staff, and he, he was a greeter, a hospitality manager at Chick-fil-A, and he just said, look, uh, um, I had no idea. When I had choir practice afterwards, and I had people stand on their feet for two hours, and I didn't realize what it was like to stand on your feet all day long. And he was convicted. So part of what we need to do is just say, guys, we need to think about at least putting out enough for our job in the church as the typical layman, the model layman and I've seen this again and again, and so I'll just leave it at that. Here's the second one. The expression, do what you love, or are passionate about, and you'll never work another day in your life. Have you heard that? Okay, you know, I took the cooter, I took the cooter preference test in high, junior high, and I found out, you know, they'd ask you, would you rather read books to children or watch for smoke from a fire tower, and things like that, and they finally said you're this or that. Uh, all right, well, yeah, I mean, I. I've gotten to do some things I like, but you know, there's a false promise in that, I think. I mean, can you imagine, <laughs> here's this cherubim uh, with a sword at the, at the exit of Eden, and Adam is walking out, Genesis 3, he says, hey Adam, little tip. I heard the part about cursed ground, painful labor, sweat of your brow and such, but listen, if you'll just do what you love. <laughs> <you'll>, <laughs> You'll never work another day in your life. (laughs) Speaking of passion, this has to be one of the most inflated words uh, and overworked in our parlance. We can't just like to do something like play golf or garden or read. We have to have a passion for it. Just read church websites, you know, like, meet the pastor, you know. Well, he has a passion, you know, for numismatics or something like that. (laughs) Maybe he does it in the heat of passion. I don't know. It's just, Isn't it enough to just like something? But at any rate... Now what about the infantryman? He's in the Higgins boat, you know, the ramp has fallen, you've got a stretch of sand in Normandy, and all the machine guns are up there, and, and, and it's kind of like, yes, I have a passion to run at machine guns across stretches of sand and kill Nazis, that's my passion, not, you know, there's a lot of perilous grunt work to get done, whether it's your passion or not, and, It wasn't his passion to be barfing up breakfast and watching his buddies torn apart left and right and believing that these would be his last minutes on earth, leaving a wife and child to fend for their own back home. Let me offer a code of this never work another day in your life trope. I heard Marvin Alasky once on C-SPAN 2 or 3 say something about uh, these people that, well, I just just want to do what I just love, and it's inauthentic, and I don't do this and that. He said, look, do what you love. You know, if your thing is to like write blank, verse poetry, you know, with incense playing, and then run through fields with bubble makers and singing, I gotta be me, do it. But don't expect someone to pay you for it. You know, you know. He said, what you do is you ask in Christian grace and stewardship and love, what is it that I am so good at that I'm helpful to people to such an extent that they will pay me to do it. He says, isn't that a good way to think about life? Instead of like, is this, is this really me? You know, and, and I'm thinking, well, I gotta move on. Here's another. <laughs> Let's do 10. Now, I saw an old friend of mine, he used to be captain of the football team at, uh, at Wheaton in our day, president of our little BSU, a guy named Doug Muntin, his pastored in O'Fallon, uh, Illinois. And, and um, anyway, we were good friends, and we were both in Southwestern at the time. And he told me about going out to his little church where he was the youth director. And he'd hit the field, it was Pilot Point, Texas, and he'd hit the field and the pastor would say instantly, let's do ten. And what he meant was, get in the car and we're going to drive around and we're going to hit ten houses before supper. You know, we're just going to, I mean, it's just howdy, how you doing, that kind of thing. And, and, and they would get it, get it done. Now, this wasn't necessarily authentic, or it wasn't, I mean, it was the mechanical and so, oh, well, we don't do that. You know, we've got to be blown by the spirit wind or have some pillar of fire to go to 3, 312 Oak Street. No, what you do is you, it, it forces you to get off your and get out there where you say to the people, I care about you, how's it going? And give them a chance to say, hey, have you got a minute? Let me show you something, you know? And I don't think if I'm on the other end, I think, well, that's just mechanical. I'm obviously number nine on the list, and you're just, you know, just tricking off a list. and think, Hey, I'm glad I'm number nine. The pastor's here. And so it was just that very, it's a discipline of just being with your people. Yes, boy, do your study and all that other stuff. And speaking about authentic, I mean isn't like growing up becoming more and more inauthentic in good ways? I mean look at kids in like a classroom or something and you know it's just drilling and like this and playing like that, when someone like me is lecturing and to actually pay attention, Fighting the the you know the impulse are just like this that's inauthentic and I'm so grateful for your being inauthentic right now or or, or going into a hospital and you want to authentic it's like oh no I don't know if you're gonna live but you ain't gonna be normal if you if you heal so you know it's like no it's like Bob great to see you you know they looked like they're really doing a good job here and I'm just pleased and, well how phony is that hey you visit me in the hospital, you'd be phony. You'd be inauthentic, you know? But it's just such a form of slavery to have to be always uh, running with your passion and being, and look, it is authentic. It's authentically concerned for the feeling of the person. But you know what I'm talking about, you know? It's such a a thing that we've done. And by the way, when the pastor said, let's do 10, he didn't mean let's do 10 Twitter posts. He meant let's do 10 (laughs) visits. And by the way, in the Ten Commandments, he says, let's do six, uh, as in six days shall thou labor. Now, here's from the Army. You can sleep when you're dead, and we work half days. Very quickly, when I was, uh, uh, <laughs> when I came through college, uh, the Vietnam War was raging. We still had a draft. And so you kind of went in one way or the other. I got a little ribbon in the National Defense ring. We called it Alive in 65. OK, that's just, you're, you're around. So. Uh, I went to Benning, and uh, then one thing led to another, and I was able to keep my work at Vandy going by getting into the Tennessee Guard. So I'm out there wearing a patch, unlikely, said, hell on wheels, like, yeah, look at me. But it was, it was a mechanized unit, and we'd go to Fort Hood, Texas, and do round-out stuff with the 2nd AD. And um, You know, I, I did 28 years in the Guard Reserve, and I was a threat to none of our enemies, the best I can tell, and was, uh, <laughs> was pretty ineffectual. But we would ride up and down into the tracks and sleep and flop down and get soaked and then baked and you got all these sweat rings on your olive drabs drying out and they're screaming at you. And, and uh, then, you know, the, the CO wants to give a warning order at 11 at his tent or his track and you have to get up and then you go back and about the time you get to sleep, the re, uh, the refueling stuff coming through 2 and 3 in the morning to top off your tracks. and. And then, and then you get up at something called BMNT, Beginning Morning Nautical Twilight, which is an hour before sunrise, and you're at it again. And so after a while, somebody says, let's do this, and one guy said, come on, I mean, can't we do it? He said, you can sleep when you're dead. <laughs> okay, we're going to do it then, apparently, you know? <laughs> and that was good stuff. It basically said the mission is actually more important than how you feel about it. And that was good. Then at the end of my service, I was doing two-week tours over at the Pentagon, and um, Chief of Army Reserve and Chief of Public Affairs. And, and I remember the guys in our office there would joke they worked half days. Well, that meant they worked from 6 AM to 6 PM. And on either end, they would put an hour's commute by Volkswagen, four in a car, crammed coming up from Fredericksburg and going back. And they just laughed about it. We worked half days. You know, hoo all right. right? <laughs> Uh, And then they could be called at a moment's notice to go have their legs blown off in Bosnia or wherever, you know, what was ever cooking at the time. And then I'd go back to ministry world, an alternative universe. And I would get whiplash because we do take care of ourselves. And I better keep moving here. If I haven't alienated you yet. Sun Tzu's description. When you're in the army, you take courses. One of the courses, I think it was CNGS, had us reading these books by uh, Clausewitz and Sun Tzu and Jomini. And one of the things we read about Sun Tzu's Art of War is that battle is like water running downhill. You know, it hits hits a boulder and it does not go bonk. You know? Well, no, it finds a way around. It keeps going. And it seems like a fair number of people just go bonk in the ministry. You know, they run into a long deacon, or they are so long themselves that a godly deacon says, you cut it out, something. But you just go bonk. And what you need to do is just pick up and go with the next thing God has in your plate. And that doesn't mean if you've had an uh, you know, a, a affair with a secretary, you've embezzled funds, and you go find another pulpit. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. By the way, I found this great little book on resiliency, the military, it's a ministry thing for the military, and this resiliency means that you find what you are biblically enabled to do, I'd say just about all kinds of stuff under the Great Commission, and you can be a witness. You can, you can do all kinds of stuff, and you don't have to insist on being somebody, but you just pick up and, and do these sorts of things. You may have been mistreated fairly, mistreated unfairly, you may have been treated fairly, but you don't just go bonk. And it strikes to me that some people just eat worms and die, you know, or they eat jalapenos and explode, but they just like, what? <laughs> you've got life ahead of you. When one door closes, God opens another one. Be sure it's God opening it, but you've got all kinds of ministry you can do. Um, I got a call once. I got fired from Midwestern. He was nice to say he worked at Midwestern. I got fired. I got crosswise with the trustees, and and they've been nice to me since. I mean, it's been great. But at the moment, it was quite quite thrilling. And uh, <laughs> I remember, as I put it, that I misappropriated anger. So we'll just leave it at that. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I just the perfect storm. of I just just? Being a mess, and uh, so I got a call from Tom Elliff, who was with IMB at the time. I was doing something for the seminaries up in Alaska, and I got a call from Tom. I remember it's a weird time; it's like 10 at night, and it's still daylight. I thought this is it's later than it's ever been before, or something. So, Tom says, "Hey, I heard you're you about to go into a rough meeting." He says, "Let me tell you about a bird that flew into a badminton game." Uh, <laughs> They mistook him for a shuttlecock, and they just whooped him. I mean, it's back and forth, back and forth. And uh, about a year later, the bird's walking along the ground, and some old bird friends came by and said, "Uh, how's it going? He said, well, fine. He says, I don't fly nearly as high as I used to, but when I get off the ground at all, it's ever so sweet. And Tom says, you may not fly very high again, but I'm telling you, there's some sweet flying left. And that is the truth. And so I'm telling you, if you just get, I'm just thinking about Johnny Knoxville, if you get rolled down the hill in a porta potty, you know, or something, I mean, if you, if you make a total fool of yourself, if you wreck yourself, God saves, God uses you. And as James said, if God loves you, you got, you got ministry, you know, and you got dignity. And you do what you can, so don't go bunk, all right? Okay, here's one, I haven't taught it yet. Um, when I was at Vandy, one of my profs in philosophy of law talked about a conversation he overheard between two profs. And one asked the other, do you know Sanskrit? And he said, no, I haven't taught it yet. <laughs> Ain't that the way it is? because you can go bonk. I am driving the cameraman crazy here. I'm sorry, I hope the sound's working. You can go bonk and say, no, I, I, I've, never, I've never done that. I don't know, I didn't know. Thank. And then you just stay within your little competencies and your safe zone. Look, isn't that true, like, do you know Jude? No, I haven't preached through it yet. Uh, right, you, you rise to the occasion. Hey, would you do this or that? Uh, yeah, you know, and then all of a sudden, it's like getting people on a mission trip Who wants to go to Brazil? Yeah, you know, that'd be fun, you know? Okay, by the way, you gotta write your testimony for a a minute and a half, you gotta take 17 shots, you got dengue, you got yellow fever, you you gotta take chloroquine. We're gonna only pack 10 pounds for two weeks. We're gonna fly in treacherous airplanes over jungle and uh, don't drink the water. And by the way, there no, you've only got generators and they cut off at midnight and then it's hot. And so and, and, and by that time, they just, oh, <laughs> but, but they've already been introduced in churches going on the trip, you know? So <laughs> they're stuck. I call that the technique of getting them out on the limb, the technique of limbs, you know? Just get them out on the limb. Put yourself out on a limb beyond your, you, may, you if, if you fail, you'll have an epistemological victory, you'll discover your limits, you know? Uh, now, I don't mean just give yourself stupid stuff, just to stretch yourself, like this year, I'll swim across Galilee, you know, or uh, translate Bart into Farsi or something. No, I mean, it, it needs to be something sensible, but that's how you grow. And by the way, you don't just bless yourself as you grow, you bless other people. Like, man, we need somebody to do this kind of thing. and I, I, Well, okay, you know. It's like the old deal, if you find something needs to be done, find somebody who's too busy and then ask them. I mean, people just go after it. Next one, don't do it. It's a dead end. When I was a state exec in Indiana, I, uh, I followed a guy who was a state paper editor named David Simpson. And among the state papers back in the 80s, the Indiana Baptist was the one cheering the conservative resurgence. And so I jumped right in, and I was writing columns. I even had a column written against me in the Kentucky paper. I love, you know, if you get that, that's an acquired taste, but it's, it's invigorating. And, and I brought Gary and Tammy Ledbetter in, and they were stout editors, and we were just cooking right along. And, and, uh, and then somehow or other, they decided to divide PR and Baptist Press and the executive committee, and they were looking for a PR guy. To, uh, to be the, you know, the new VP for public, public relations. I mean, do you know that's a word you have to put just in front of? You're know, like, it's just PR, you know? <laughs> you don't say, it's just the gospel ministry or it's just parenting. And by, by the way, it's kinda, it was neat to work with Hoosier Southern Baptists and so I was, I turned it down I told them some people they should hire and it wasn't, I, I was being great, I just didn't want to do it, didn't think I, I wouldn't. It wasn't my deal, you know? And then I had an agency head, great guy, loving to this day, loves me and all that, but he said, hey, don't take that. It'll be a dead end. In other words, you can move up wherever up is. I don't think there is much up from the Indiana Baptist Convention. And, and, and so he just said, you need to think about your career. Get your concordance out. If you're old, young, you know, or strong, or whatever, but get your concordance and do a word study of career. We have career counseling and stuff like that it ain't a big deal you know I mean the closest we got is dramas and it's it's the careers from the French career it means like the route a horse runs and a hippodrome is in Greek the route a horse runs and you don't, you know career planning oh this will be good I need to be here I need I need to have a church this size by this time and Do you remember that old book, How to Become Bishop Without Being Religious? Do you you, you remember? That was in the 70s. It says at each level you should have like, start with a two-door falcon, and then when you're a big church pastor, a metallic green Oldsmobile, and, you know, you kind (laughs) of... Anyway, I thought, what does that have to do with anything? And yet, we think of career. But in the Bible, I mean, you're, you're just going hither and yon and up and down and so forth, and. Paul, you know, gets the Macedonian call and he doesn't say, yeah, but do you have dental? You know, I mean, <laughs> you, just, you just go. And, and so, what's your career is, you, you go this and that, and you get thrown in the sea here, and you get cursed there, and this and that, and promoted there, and you get an income, and you get it taken away, and then you look back after decades and say, I guess that was my career. Interesting. <laughs> I remember Richard Owen Roberts was speaking once at a revival meeting, a revival workshop in Little Rock, First Baptist, and he said that, um, it was an hour and 45 minute sermon, it seemed like 30 minutes, it was great. He said, the most dangerous place in your life is when you come to the place, when you move from saying, why me, to why not me. When you get called, when somebody says, and I'm just thinking about James at Howard and stuff like this, God, God, you mean me? In the ministry, or I, you know? You don't. I mean, why me? But then you get your face in the state paper, and you get your degree, and you get to this and to that, and the little stats are looking good. And then they have board appointments, and they have that. And It's like, excuse me, uh, why not me? Bad place to be. Bad place to be. And um, by the way, they didn't ask. Going back to World War II, I was reading in Wall Street Journal the other day about a guy named uh, Lois Dean of Altus, Oklahoma. He could have stepped out of that mission in the Battle of Manila because he had a a damaged foot from shrapnel, but he wrapped it up, he got into that torpedo bomber, and in the course of the the action, his head was blown off, he was decapitated. And when they finally landed, the inside of the cockpit all over was so full of blood and tissue that they decided to clean that plane up was just not worth it, and so they just shoved uh, shoved it into the ocean and buried him at sea. And it wasn't like he thinks, hey, you know, if I get on the hospital ship with an injured foot, maybe they'll sign a surrender on the battleship Missouri, and then maybe, you know, there are folks who say, in the midst of these things, they'll say, I need to position myself so that whichever way it comes out, I'll be okay. And boy, there are masters at that. And it's just, um, it's just embarrassing to see that sort of thing. Now, I don't say, now just make a snap judgment and throw yourself on a grenade. You may throw, on the, throw yourself on the wrong grenade. I mean, there's a time to sort things out, and, and I'm not going to gainsay your thinking, but it's when it becomes cagey, temporizing. If I can just maybe say a little here, a little there, be seen here, be seen that, and then whichever way the battle goes, I'll be doing okay. And then I could say, well, why not me? I get a certain kind of encouragement that I like, sorta. Um, when, when I was a, a brand new exec, uh, they used to bring the state execs together, and we would get briefings at the Sunday School Board and different places like that, and we had just had brand new officers elected. I don't know if you remember going back to San Antonio. Jerry Vines, Daryl Robinson, and Rudy Hernandez. And so they're on the stage, and we're up here interviewing them, or talking to them in an exchange, and it was a shooting gallery. Richard Jackson had lost again. Like, how dare you, you redneck deplorables, whatever, you know. You have, you're so divisive, you know, we couldn't have that. Uh, make your appointments broadly, peace-giving, a little this and this. And I listened to this, and even some guys who I knew to be a were kind of doing this sort of bureaucratic thing, like we need to make everything cool. And, and so little newbie stuck his hand up and just said, well, I, you know, I think they were elected to kind of make some tough choices and do some stuff. And, oh, they looked around at me like, what a callow turkey this is. And and I really felt lonely, but like, like James, I thought, well, I don't care if you don't like me. Uh, my mama does, and Jesus does, <laughs> you know. But... But the funny thing is, and I've seen this again and again and again, and perhaps you've had this too. If you sort of stick your neck out after it's over, whether it's online in a discussion string or it's in the hallway, like, hey, hey, appreciate what you said. Thank you. Hey, <laughs> mega. You know. It's great, it really helps, I'm telling you, keep it up. But, but there is that question, where were you? You know? And that's a big deal, but I tell you, career interest will cripple you in this direction. You've got to be very careful that you're not a calculating careerist. Look, you don't have to fight every battle. Jay Strack said once regarding backward masking, Do you remember that, where if you're running backwards, that Satan is my God. He just said, don't be a dog that chases every car. You don't have to be a dog that chases every car. There's calling, you pick your battles, I know that. But if you're agreeing strongly with someone, but you're not standing with him or her, then check your manliness or your womanliness or something, you know, it's just, uh, and don't get them mixed up, uh, you know, whatever sowing and reaping in Evanston. Alright, this is the next one. I, I hope I'm doing okay in time. Sowing and reaping in Evanston. So I'm a church planter in Evanston, and uh, we're knocking on doors, and uh, we ended up with volunteers from Leavenworth, Kansas, and from Magnolia, Arkansas, and we knocked on 12 miles of doors in Evanston, the People's Republic of Evanston, uh, where Northwestern is, with the gospel. We'd say, hey, you hear about gospel music, gospel this and that? What do you think the gospel is? And, they would, and then we'd give them this, and we'd invite them to church, and we were We had a huge map with every little house in Evanston, we'd mark them off. As a result of this 12-mile door knocking, we had one guy show up, and he was a Baha'i, and he just wanted to brush up on the Christian angles, you know, because they believe in all these things. And we did other things. We mailed to 15,000 people. We had a a Broadview Missionary Baptist Church on the west side, Clarence Hobson came over with two buses. We had gospel music on the lakefront by Northwestern, just did all kinds of stuff. And I think we netted something like um, eight people from that. And so here's what you would say at this point. Well, that doesn't work. I hear this so much. That doesn't work anymore. You know? Well, what happened is not long after that, I was invited to speak to the Northwestern InterVarsity Group, the biggest one. One thing led to another. I ended up baptizing the president of InterVarsity at Northwestern. And her dad was a Lutheran pastor, and she'd been sprinkled as a child. And all of a sudden we started getting Northwestern people and all this kind of stuff. And I've heard about this kind of economy, God's economy, and it's no guarantee for sure. But I think God was banking what we had done. That stupid thing we were doing, presenting the gospel door to door in Evanston. He says, I like that. And now I'm gonna bless this church in this other way. So sometimes the reaping and the sowing are in different fields. But it strikes me, and I'm not embarrassed. And So when people say, uh, I mean, can you imagine preaching that way? Well, I preached on Romans 9, you know, or I went through this and that in the gospel and nobody got saved. Well, that doesn't work. (laughs) you know. Oh man, you get prickly over the words of sovereignty of God and salvation in Romans 9 and say, "Uh uh-oh, I better not bring that up again, you know? Why is it that we treat our ministry the way we don't treat our pulpit? I mean, you don't think that if they don't respond, then you failed. You're just doing God's, God's thing, you know? So, pragmatics. Look, yeah, there are places to adjust. I mean, if you preach for an hour in a monotone, somebody suggests vocal variance, you know, you have this range and this range, you know, well, that could help, and maybe 30 minutes will get her done, you know? Uh, or if you're two word at a time, treatment of Jude that takes nine years, maybe pick it up, you know? Uh, so out of this, and I'm running out of time, I'm sure, but out of this, um, you know, we had, we had three people on in the international IMB mission field. We have people who are junior professors who are representing Christ in ACC, SEC, and Big Ten conference colleges. We have people in ministry in America. God used that church, and we saw blessings and growth. Joe Ingram's plea. My father-in-law was a state exec in Missouri, Reuben South, a wonderful guy, B-17 bombardier in World War II. When he died in office of leukemia, they named a state mission offering for him, for Missouri Baptist, a wonderful guy. Reuben South was telling me about the execs, when I wasn't one, meeting with the seminary presidents. And these guys were Honeycutt, Dilday, Level, Ferguson, Lolly, and Pollard, back in the day. And so I think it was Dr. Honeycutt said to them, says, now we want to know what is it that you need from our seminaries as we're coming out. And he thought they'd say, if you give them more in homiletics or maybe a little more pastoral uh, uh, savvy or take them on more mission trips or whatever counseling. And Joe Ingram in his 60s from Oklahoma said, would you just send us some people who will (laughs) work? Honestly, I mean, I I resonate with this. And I'm going to be very quick and I hope delicate about this. I had volunteers helping us plant our church in Chicago, some really good ones. But in some cases, whether we're talking praxis or mission service corps or whatever, we had some people who were really into being instead of doing. And they would get like wear Starbucks or someplace and for the first couple hours they would, I don't know, go deeper and deeper in Bible study and gaze into each other's eyes and <laughs> and uh, and then at noon he would Play hoops at the Y and hope that after maybe four weeks, someone will say, What's different about you? And then you could give them a track. And uh, I thought, Look, being is nice. Let me, um, they were lovely. They were lovely people. Um, now you see why I was fired, by the way. Thank uh, <laughs> you. This one I call Right, Right, and Right, Right. Now, write, write, the first is like, come on, come on, write, write, write. Write thank you notes. Just get a card. I mean, just just write your people. And, and it's, it's so easy. I mean, some of the little stuff you do is enormous. You can work 20 hours on a sermon and they'll say play with it in the street, you know? But one visit at the hospital at a key time and they'll walk on glass for you the rest of their lives. It's just crazy, the economy. A thank you note. And a sincere one really means a lot. And look, if you think, oh, my cursive writing, I mess up, scratch it out. It looks like it hadn't been generated by a machine, you know? And and write the words you want. My father-in-law was uh, a businessman uh, in Detroit, and he knew a guy named um, um, SS Kresge, Kresge Stores, Kmart. And when my grandmother, Eleanor, died, he wrote my grandfather a two-word note. I heard SS Kresge. Now that, what that's not eloquent. No, it is eloquent. It just says, "Hey, hey, Alan, I heard." It doesn't take much. And by the way, write, writer and writer. That is to say, your tool is words. Tools are words, right? I mean, if you're bi it may be a steering wheel and a bake oven. but generally when you're doing your work, it's words. And so be good at words, learn words. When I read uh, something and I don't know the word, I'll circle it and I'll put a V and circle it in the, in the margin for vocabulary. And so if I don't know what the word um, obsequious means or something like that, and then or ubiquitous, then I'll look it up. I mean, it's like discovering tools like, oh, there's a wrench for taking off oil filters? Hello, you know, oh, <laughs> or like, oh, a mall can break wood up too. It doesn't stick like an ax. And you know, and you think, thank you. Fall in love with words. Um, be like Tool Time Tim. Um, quickly, quickly, I've, you know, I've really lost track. I started a little early. How many more minutes do I have, and I'll be quick here. Just don't want to run over time, because I'm okay. Okay, profession versus trade. Look, John uh, Piper had a good book called uh, Brothers We Are Not Professionals, A Plea to Pastors for Radical Ministry. And uh, a year earlier, I wrote a piece in a John Armstrong collection called Deliver Us from Professionalization. And what we meant there was, you don't want to turn into like a domesticated squirrel. You know, you don't want to be a slick dude. You don't want to be the kind of guy that everybody likes because you're a smoothie, you know? You gotta have some edges, right? and uh, you gotta kinda be out there and, and, and have the ability in right ways to offend. And so let's not try to be so dapper and snappy and, and smooth. However, there is something important and it's the difference between a profession and a trade. Both of them very important. In a trade, the customer is always right. Okay, uh, you know, if you're a li- uh, landscaper or I mean they can be artists, but let's just say you're a clerk and somebody wants this perfume or you're a waiter. What's your best thing? Chicken fried steak. Um, you know, I think I'd prefer. Oh, well, that's good, too. You know, you, you're answering the It's like new Coke failed. Let's go back to old Coke, right? In a profession, your job is, and there's a lot more you could say about it, your job is to occasionally if not frequently insult people. Right? I've been to the doctor recently, and he said, you got to have one of these Mose things where you got a little basal cell cancer. Well, I don't like that. I've got a schedule that day. And I don't like that word, the C word. Stop it, you know? You no, know, I mean, you, I'll go somewhere else. No, I'm telling you, you got this cancer working out here, you know? Well, how dare you, sir? And then I, I get a, an attorney for something or other, and he says, "Hey, I, was, I want to take the stand and tell them what for." He says, nah, 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 "Don't get on the stand." Well, yes, I'll get an attorney. Let me get on the stand. Listen, there is a place for a professional to say, "Look, I'm just saying there's a standard. They have a body of theory, and they're by the way, they're never off duty. You know, I mean, when you when you leave the auto assembly line, you're off. You can go to the Tigers game and just have a great old time." and not even think about whether you're gonna put the widget on the, on the femster, you know, whatever, the next day. But if you're a preacher, you're thinking, why, oh, and then you jot stuff down all the time, or you could call in the middle of the night. So in that sense, we are professionals, and it is a profession. Thank God for tradesmen, but also thank God for pastors who are more than tradesmen, rather prophets and faithful physicians in administering the treatments of the word. Otherwise, you join the ranks of the haberdashers on commission, that you're just for hire, and you don't do that. Very quickly, greatest ministry after paralysis. I took a practicum course, you had to take it southwestern, and you you watched how they did the Lord's Supper and how to baptize, and then I did hospital visits. And they had a little book about doing work in the hospital, and I read something I never forgot. One guy became a quadriplegic, and he said it was after that that my ministry took off. Because he said, I discovered the power of prayer, and I became a laborer at prayer, and things began to happen, and I was so ineffectual until God made me unable to move. There is laboring in prayer. Sometimes the joke is, we Southern Baptists, uh, uh, our patron saint is St. Vitus. If if you remember St. Vitus dance, it's just just jerks and movements and so forth, and we're always just in activity. We need to sometimes just, often, just get into prayer, contemplation, meditation, That can be important work in preparation for work. Baffled mules. Back when I went into the ministry, there was a Home Mission Board, the Hornam Prayer and Spiritual Awakening Office. Glenn Shepherd was leading it, and we listened to J. Edward Orr videos. You know, and he said when revival hit Wales, then the the mine mules were confused because everybody cussed them out usually, and now they're not cussing and they don't know what to do. Listen. You remember names like Jeremiah Lanfear and Duncan Campbell, and, and, and Seth Joshua, and all that? And even Asbury, and Robert Coleman, and, and, and so forth. And look, I'm telling you, we worry about the demographics, demographics in America, and the other folks are trying to get it loaded up, and we get our group, and our group here, and then we can, we're on. Un- I'm just telling you what, God can send awakening on our land. If we're worrying about the demographics of America, one thing we ought to focus on is the demographics in heaven. Because if the demographics change in heaven because future demographics, because of our efforts here on earth under his sovereignty, then you're gonna be surprised at what happens at the culture. So don't just be thinking Washington, don't just be thinking the Washington Post, but think about changed souls. Wouldn't it be crazy if all these people they were counting on became radically saved and so forth? I mean, mercy. Well, let me conclude with what Ted Williams said. Ted Williams was a lost man, strange man, had his head cut off and put in deep freeze after he got saved, after he, got, after he died, so that he, maybe they could find a young body to sew it onto uh, later on. But he was amazing. He was a war hero. He was a uh, Hall of Famer. And, uh, and he said basically about growing old, he said, there's nothing good about it. It's just terrible. And, and I want to tell you, um, it's tough growing old. I mean you suffer, I made a little list here, I found his ominous assessment assessment, uh, including agreeing with this, suffer loss of energy, memory, health, strength, balance, status, respect, taste and smell, and yes old friends as they drop. You know the dust to dust clause in Genesis 319 still in effect incrementally for each of us if we live long enough. And yeah, you can put a try, Proverbs Harvard 1631 t-shirt on, gray hairs, a crown of splendor, you know, and walk around in it and so forth. But let me tell you this, there's a lesson here. If you give high place in your life to, sorry, I don't feel like it, then you can pretty well hang it up as you get older. Fact of the matter is, you'll less and less feel like it. But if you want to finish well and not just finish, you'd better learn to suck it up. Amen. And if you want to do your kids a favor, don't give them a pass when they play the whiny card, because you're setting them up to be utterly worthless in their old age. I love the story of one guy, I think it was C.E. Autry, retired from the Home Mission Board Evangelism, bought him some Nikes, you know, or Adidas or something, went out to Salt Lake City and he just went door to door trying to plant a church in the Mormon thing. It's like, I'm just gonna die with my Nikes on. Let that be. I think most of you are familiar with the old Johnny Paycheck song. He was actually Donald Eugene Little, in which he declares, I ain't working here no more. Take this job and shove it. Well, that foreman, he's a regular dog. The line boss, he's a fool. Got a brand new flat top haircut. Lord, he thinks he's cool. You know? And so you go on with that. And he's not an outlier. As I was putting together the work and leisure course at Southern, and actually earlier at Wheaton, I began to gather work songs for scrutiny. And I found they were overwhelmingly negative. You know, Tennessee Ernie Ford, if you go back that far, 16 tons and what do you get, another day older and deeper in debt, St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go, I owe my soul to the company store. You know, there are, there are several coal songs, like whoop, I like to slip down, booking in the, co-. okay. Dolly Parton. <laughs> Dolly Parton, 9 to 5. Working 9 to 5, what a way to make a living. Barely getting by, but it's all taken and no given. They just use your mind. They never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Wow, I'm getting worked up here. So as I read pastoral council things and blogs and this and that, I kind of think maybe our song should be, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. (laughs) Sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down, oh, yes, Lord. Sometimes I'm almost in the ground. The pastor's song, which is what I'm picking up from a lot of the stuff, there's nothing harder than that. But what about Fanny Crosby's song, To the Work? She was blind, she wrote 8,000 hymns, gospel songs, four books of poetry, among other things. Maybe she has something for us to sing. To the work, to the work, we are servants of God. Let us follow the path that our master has trod. With the balm of his counsel, our strength to renew, let us do what our, with our might what our hands find to do. Now what, toiling on, they changed the words later because they were embarrassed. Toiling on, toiling on, toiling on, let us hope and trust, let us watch and wait and labor till the master comes. And no, you don't sing toiling on to the Volga Boatman. Toiling on, toiling on, whatever. How about that for a song? In Crazy Busy, Kevin DeYoung says, the Bible commands hard work and it also extols the virtue of rest. Both have their place. The hard part is putting them in the right places. Exactly right. And on another day, I could sing the virtues of leisure. I could recount the fun and rest I enjoy watching Mysteries on BritBox or seeing Major League Baseball games in 20 parks now uh, to date. But this day I lobby for more good old-fashioned toil. And by old-fashioned, I mean Genesis 3, old-fashioned. But did I mention that I had some fun in doing this, toiling away as I prepared this talk? And make no mistake, there is toil in writing and rewriting. Indeed, I was able to, in the words of Snow White, whistle while I worked. And as I head back to Nipper's Corner on the south side of Nashville this evening, I, dopey, or perhaps you'll label label me grumpy, trust that I can join with sleepy, sneezy, happy Doc and bashful in singing, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's home from work I go. And perhaps I can just begin to make out the ultimate greeting that awaits us in Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not well contemplated, well imagined, well observed, well intentioned, but well done.